Good morning. Welcome to Incarnation. Great to be worshiping with you this morning. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 28. A person doesn't know what happiness is until they're married. And by then, it's too late. <laughs> Frank Sinatra. <laughs> the entire sermon will be somewhere between those two quotes, okay? <laughs> Because we're talking about the marriage of Leah and Jacob this morning. I love how God's word is honest. The Bible is very real in its depiction of human life, the good and the bad. And it turns out in the Bible, we don't have any fairy tale love stories, right? Where everything is just easy and perfect and the couple just rides off into the sunlight. Sun, sunset, right? Turns out that's only in the movies. Instead, we find real people in real relationships. And even the best relationships are wrought with complexities and challenges and seasons of real difficulty. In his sermon on the same passage, Tim Keller, who recently went on to be with the Lord, the former pastor of Church of, of, of Redeemer, sorry, Presbyterian in New York City. He preached on this passage, by the way, by his own, by his own volition at a wedding, uh, decided to talk about this one. And as he did, he noted that the Bible isn't sentimental when it comes to the top, topic of marriage. He said this, the Bible is always hard Oh, I'm sorry, the Bible is utterly realistic about this. It is always hard and often devastated to not be married. And it is always hard and sometimes devastating to be married. And so what he would remind us this morning is that sometimes when we're single, we can idolize the, the married life, right? And how good it must be and how fulfilling to have someone. And there's an other side to that, right? And we all know people that are in marriages where they are feeling incredibly lonely, incredibly isolated, unfulfilled, and unloved. And that's the kind of story we have this morning. Just a little reminder before we get into the details of the story, okay? Genesis is a story about a God that has chosen one family. And through that one family, he's going to bless them and through them, the entire world. That family is not meant to be a model family for you. If you thought the Bible was supposed to be a book about moral heroes, you know, that you could model your life after, you're going to be very disappointed simply by reading the very first book of the Bible. That's not what the Bible is trying to do. And Genesis is not inviting people to be like Jacob. It's a story about a God who is at work not only in fallen and sinful people, 
but he is at work in and through a fallen and sinful culture. And God's promise is working in and through these people, and that is not a validation at all of the sins of their culture, but rather it's a validation of his love and his commitment to redeem us from our sinful ways. I'm saying this, for example, that this story is not meant in any way and cannot be used to validate practices such as polygamy. On the contrary, this story that we find about polygamy and other stories like it in the Old Testament are always demonstrating just how problematic it is, just how devastating it is to families when people try to engage in practices like this. The Bible does it, celebrate it, it tries to mitigate it, and it even condemns it. And I'll go a step further to note that we have one of the worst forms of polygamy we can imagine in this passage, which one man married to two sisters, right, from the same family. I guess that's the only way sisters work, right? They're from the same family. But this is actually a violation of the very Torah, God's instruction, which is fine, right? Leviticus 18.18 says, a man cannot marry two sisters from the same family. It's a bad idea, God says, right? And so the people here in this story are familiar with the Torah. They're very familiar. This is their story. And say they know that these patriarchs are living in a wild time. <laughs> and they're out there and, and they're on a journey and their lives aren't perfect. And they're not ideal according to the ways of the Bible. And yet God is still in doing a work and bringing about his promise through situations that are less than ideal. And I know for me, I can find that as a strong source of comfort. Because I too sometimes find myself feel like I'm living in situations that are less than ideal, right? I too find that I am not uh, a perfect person that gets it right all the time that doesn't mess things up. And so know that the God that we serve is a God that has a promise, it's a sure promise, and he's bringing it about through very flawed people, people like us, people like Jacob. So let's talk about our story today. If you were here last week, when we were also discussing the same dysfunctional family, you might remember that Jacob was on the run from his brother for a good reason, right? Because he had deceived his father and stole the blessing of the older brother, and now the older brother wants to kill him. And so Jacob flees up north to his uncle's house, to his uncle Laban, in search of Laban, whom, by the way, he's never met, right? It's a very long ways away. And so he makes this long distance, and he finally comes to this place, the place of the well. It's the place where... Uh, in the generation before him, right, that hit, uh, his mother, Rebecca, was found, right? If you remember, the servant was sent to find her. So it's that same place. And so it's like the, this kind of fairy tale love story maybe happening all over. There he is. He's there in person. And Jacob starts showing off. Like he starts telling the shepherds like how to do their job. And then there's like this stone that needs to be rolled away, right? And he rolls the stone away, right? So he's kind of showing off. And he meets Rachel. And he finds out that Rachel is the son 
of Levan, his uncle, and this is exactly the kind of person that he has gone in search for, in search for a wife. And so it feels like things are coming together. And so he embraces Rachel and he, he, he helps to water her sheep, you know. And then she goes home and runs off to tell her dad, hey, our, you know, our family is here. This is great. Jacob's in town. And so Laban runs out to meet Jacob. He's so excited that he's here and he welcomes him and Jacob shares his story. <laughs> and I love what Laban says to him. Surely you are bone. You are my bone and my flesh. Surely we are cut from the same cloth. And you know what? That's exactly right. <laughs> more, way more so than Jacob would ever want to be the case. There's a lot of humor in these stories, guys. The Bible is not written by unimaginative people. So Jacob moves in. He becomes a successful manager of the family business, and he's doing great. And Laban comes to him and says, hey, just because we're family doesn't mean you don't need to get paid. So let's go ahead and just name your wages. What do you want? You're doing such great work. We're glad to have you here. And then the text says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Now, Hebrew scholars aren't exactly sure what is meant by this word weak. It's kind of a strange word to use in conjunction, at least in the language. Doesn't seem uh, to make too much sense on its own. But when you contrast it, there's Leah who has something going on with her eyes, right? And in contrast, Rachel is graceful and beautiful. Rachel is the more beautiful one of the two daughters. There is something about Leah that makes her unattractive. And so Jacob says to his uncle, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, of course, to many of us, this will sound weird. When someone asks, what do you want to get paid? Let me have the hand of your daughter in marriage. How about that? You know, it's like, no, I think I'm going to give you an hourly salary, maybe a 401k, okay? <laughs> My hilarious Old Testament professor, John Golden Gay, I'll have to tell you more about him at some point. But he notes this in his commentary. He says, like most cultures, ancient Near Eastern culture assumes that there are some economic arrangements associated with marriage. And these act to seal good relationships between families and provide a framework for handling the consequences of the marriage breaking down or one of the partners dying. And then he helps us see that this actually isn't incredibly different than how it works here in the modern West. And that when we get married, we too receive significant gifts, right? We have wedding showers and, and we get some significant gifts and we sign things like prenuptial agreements, right? Economic agreements, legal documents, and we have laws that ensure surviving rights for partners. So much of this economic exchange that still happens in so many cultures of the world today has to do with ensuring uh, the well-being of both parties going forward in the future. For instance, both Leah and Rachel will come with servants. These are assets that Laban is going to give them 
to ensure their well-being. Also, there are gifts given from the groom uh, to the family of the bride. But what Golden Gate notes is we can't really use this term bride price here because there is no more of an assumption that the groom can own a wife than there is in our culture. Perhaps the term that is more appropriate is bride service. In fact, it is very likely that Rachel is really young at this time. And so waiting seven years probably isn't going to be all that bad because it probably be a, a normal time to wait for a younger woman to marry. And so Jacob suggests seven years of service in exchange for the girl he loves. And Jacob works diligently for Laban for seven years. He does great work. He's successful. And then finally, when the time has come, he says, okay, my time is completed. Let me have my wife. And so Laban calls together the whole village and he throws a big wedding feast as they would have done, probably with lots of wine. And Jacob, probably like many folks that we might know, has a little bit too much to drink at his wedding. And he goes into his tent ready for the wife that he has waited for for so many years. There's no electricity. It's really dark. And Laban brings in his daughter, probably wearing a veil as many women did at that time. And finally, the moment Jacob has been waiting for all these years, all this pent-up desire released on Laban's daughter. And then in the morning, Jacob wakes up, and as the Hebrew says, and there was Leah. (laughs) There she was. Not what he was expecting. Golden Gay says, the person he has married is not the person he thought it was. And of course, all married couples have that experience one way or another. (laughs) It's actually always the case that you never marry the person you thought you were going to marry. Not only because you didn't really know who they were and what you were getting into, but there was no way to know what that person was becoming. And when we enter into a marriage, we are, we're in a sense marrying a moving target. We're marrying someone that's ever changing. And we never know what we're getting ourselves into. And that's exactly why we do marriage here in front of the altar before a community of witnesses that are gonna help us and be committed with us to making this crazy thing work that we call marriage. Our friend Keller takes it a step further. And what he says is that in the morning, there's always Leah. And he doesn't only mean that in marriage, he means that in all of life. He means that in that job that you thought, if only I could get that job and it, it, it's going to make my life so much better if I can get into this career and be successful and have this opportunity. And there's always Leah. If only I could live in the right house or in the right part of town or in the right town 
or if only I could do such and such, or only I could have a relationship with such a kind of person. There's always Leah. There's always the realization that there's always something that you were hoping for, and there's something in this life that is not going to bring fulfillment. We were meant for a love and a fulfillment in which things and people cannot fulfill. It's, there's always Leah. And so Jacob makes his discovery and he cries out, what is it you have done to me, Uncle Laban? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Jacob the deceiver has met his match, <laughs> his own bone and flesh. Only Uncle Laban has been at it a lot longer and he's a lot better at the game. Think about it. Jacob, who deceived his father, right, to usurp and steal what rightfully belonged to the oldest in the family, is now being what? Deceived by a father, right, to make things right for the oldest in the family. He gets played at his own game. Only the question is, who gets caught in the middle of these two deceivers? Who's the victim in the game? Poor, unwanted Leah. Leah is now stuck between a deceiving father and an unloving husband. We might have imagined that life for her as a single woman might have been better. Now she's stuck in a marriage without love that creates hostility between her and her sister. It is not her fault. The way things are is not her fault. It's not her fault she can't help how she looks. She can't help that she has a jerk of a husband and a jerk of a dad. And so she's going to tell herself what we often tell ourselves. It's okay. I can change him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win him over. And Leah's life becomes all about what can I do to make my husband love me? The reformer Martin Luther used to say something like this, that you actually can't break, we think about the Ten Commandments, you can't break commandments three through ten without breaking the first two. So the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second is, don't make any idols, right? And so the thought is something like this, like say, I'm, I tell a lie, right? I'm breaking uh, a commandment. Well, I'm telling that lie to do what? Maybe somehow I think I'm trying to preserve my reputation. Well, if I've broken God's law to preserve my reputation, that means that I'm making an idol out of my own reputation, right? I don't just break that commandment, but I can't do it without breaking the first two. In a sense, I would be trusting my reputation to save me and putting it ahead of God. So how do you know what your idols are? And again, our friend Keller gives us a test. You can fill in the blank here. This is an idol test. 
my life only has meaning or I only have worth if fill in the blank. And whatever it is you put in that blank helps you to know what your idol is. So I'll name a few so that you get how this works. Life only has meaning if I have power and influence over others. This is the, uh, po- the idolatry of power. Or I only have worth if I am highly productive and getting a lot done. This is the idolatry of work. How about life only has meaning if I am recognized for my accomplishments and am excelling in my work. It's the idolatry of achievement. Or I only have worth if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. The idolatry of materialism. Now the thing about this whole list, and it's a long list, and I'd love to share it with you, just let me know, is everything on the list is really good things. There's nothing bad on this list. It's just that no person and no thing were ever meant to bring us ultimate meaning or define our worth. It turns out that only God can do that. Life only has meaning if my children or my parents are happy and happy with me. This is the idolatry of family. You know that God wants you to love and care for your family? Family's great. It's God's idea. But even they can become an idol that separates you from God and distorts your sense of reality. Life only has meaning if Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. This is the idolatry of relationship. Leah, in her desperation, makes idols out of her family and out of her relationship with her husband. Verse 31 says that the Lord sees that Leah is unloved as she has to live with next to her sister, Rachel, who is loved and he sees her misery and he opens her womb. And so she has a son and you can hear the pain and the desperation and even the idolatry of relationship in the names that she gives her sons. The first one is named Reuben. And it sounds like two Hebrew words, one for the word to see, and the second one is the word for he loves. And she says this, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. And then she has another son and says, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has given me this son also. And she names him Simeon, which sounds like the Hebrew word for herd. And then she has another son and says, this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi, which sounds like the Hebrew word for joined. Life only has meaning if 
Jacob loves me. Jacob is the idol that has come to dominate her sense of meaning and worth. Every time she has a son, she names him in reference to her affliction, in reference to her unhappy state of being unloved by the only person that had ever mattered to her. But then by the time the fourth son comes, something has changed. And the text doesn't tell us exactly why. Maybe the God that spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has also spoken to Leah. Maybe he has spoken the promise to her. Maybe she began to believe the promise for herself. Maybe she began to realize that God's promise to bless the world was actually coming true through her very life. There's nothing that fills in the details, but somehow Leah has had a breakthrough. And she has a fourth son, and she names him Judah. And she says, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. No reference to her idol, no reference to her wanting to be loved by her husband. Simply this time I resolve to praise the Lord. And if you know the long story of God's promise coming to fulfillment, and friends, it is a long story. It is a long story with many turns and twists and many sad nights. But if you know this long story, then you might know that Jesus will come from the tribe of Judah. God is saying to Leah, Jacob hasn't chosen you, but I am choosing you. And through you, I will bring about the chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior. This is the one I've been telling you about through whom all peoples of the earth will be blessed. And Leah becomes the mother of Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he too will be despised and rejected. Isaiah prophesies about him in the 53rd chapter, says this, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, and yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the punishment that made us whole was placed and by his bruises, we are healed. 
Friends, in the incarnation, Jesus shed himself of the heavenly beauty, his eternal glory and divine splendor, and he humbled himself. And he became a man and he took the form of a servant, despised and rejected. And Jesus entered into the suffering of his mother, Leah, and he took his place with all those who have been afflicted and oppressed and the outsiders and the unloved. And through the cross of Christ, God was making good on his promise to give countless children to Abraham and through them to the entire world. Friends, Christ gave up his beauty to make us beautiful. The son experienced the rejection of the father that we might be chosen into God's family. This time I will praise the Lord. What would it look like for you to take your deepest disappointments and your deepest longings and to place them in the long unfolding story of God's redemption. We know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. God, grant us eyes to know and to see your plan of redemption. Amen.